Thank you, team. I have the privilege of being uh, of co-introducing Dr. Moeller this morning. Uh, for those of you who have been around the church for a while, Dr. Moeller needs no introduction, but for you newbies, this is for you. Uh, Dr. Moeller is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the largest seminaries in the world. Uh, Time Magazine said this of him, that he is the reigning intellectual of the evangelical movement in the U.S. If you're not already listening to his daily uh, program called The Briefing, I suggest you add it to your podcast list, as well as uh, Thinking in Public. That's another program. He's a widely sought-after columnist and, and commentator. He has appeared on Larry King Live numerous times, uh, AC360, many programs on NBC, Fox News as well. Uh, Dr. Moeller's recent book, uh, We Cannot Be Silent, Speaking Truth in a Culture, Redefining Sex, Marriage, and the Very Meaning of Right and Wrong, is a fantastic book. I strongly recommend it. Uh, Dr. Moeller also uh, lives in Louisville with his wife, Mary. Uh, they have two children, Katie and Christopher. Katie has given them their first grandson, Benjamin, who he's very proud of. As I mentioned, I am co-introducing Dr. Moeller, which is a, uh, a gauge of how someone is esteemed in this church. Uh, Dad is at our Leading the Way Sydney office in Australia for the next several weeks, and he has a video welcome that he'd like to show. So draw your attention to the screens. His strong stance for biblical truth has been such an encouragement to thousands upon thousands of Christian leaders and pastors, not only in this country, but around the world. It is an honor and a privilege to welcome him back to the pulpit at Apostles. And I want you to give Dr. Mola the most rousing welcome because he has gone into hardship to be with us today, beginning the celebration of 500 years of the Reformation. Dr. Mola, welcome to Apostles. God bless you. Thank you. Good morning, and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. My heavens, God bless you. I do feel welcome. And uh, I feel so privileged to be here at the Church of the Apostles once again and with you. Uh, very moved by those words of introduction, both from Joshua and from, uh, from Michael. Um, I'm just always glad to be here at the Church of the Apostles. I'm glad every time I think of you. I'm glad every time, more times than I'd like to say, I fly over you <laughs> and uh, look down and see the Church of the Apostles, and I'm just so encouraged. I'm so thankful for what you represent as a church and as a people, what this pulpit represents. Uh, my dear friend, Dr. Michael Youssef, is one of the great Christian leaders of this age, and I am just so thankful for him. And thankful to see how the Lord is using his ministry here and all over the world. And the team you have here uh, on your staff, just absolutely incredible. I want you to know they not only represent you very well and represent Christ very well, it is clear they love being here at the Church of the Apostles, and they love leading and ministering with you, and that's tangible from the very moment you come onto this property. 
you know there's enormous jealousy across the entire evangelical world for the name of your church. It's like, why didn't we think of that? <laughs> and, and so, you can just see it. When you say the Church of the Apostles, everyone goes, well, that, that's what every church should be. Absolutely. That's the point. You just had the sense to name yourself that. <laughs> but the fact is that wherever you find the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you find the church continuing in the apostles' doctrine. And so our hope should be that, that every single church would be every single Lord's Day ever more the church of the apostles. We are now celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And I don't just mean now, I mean now. October of 2017, looking back to October of 1517, there aren't many events worthy of a 500-year recognition. This one compels our attention. The sad thing is that there will be many evangelicals who will be rather blissfully unaware of the significance of what took place 500 years ago. And you know, the most important thing for us is not that people remember the Reformation. The most important thing is that they preach the gospel as it was recovered in the Reformation. But one of the things we know is that as God has made us chronological creatures and memory is so important to us, if we do not remember well, we will not continue well. We have to continually remember who we are. And this goes all the way back to Israel. Remember how the Lord told the people of Israel through Moses? Just think of a text like Deuteronomy chapter 4. When your son comes to you and asks, what is the meaning of these laws and these statutes and these commandments? Then you tell your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out by his outstretched arm and his mighty hand. He brought us out in order that he may bring us into the land of promise. You, we have to remember what God has done in order to remember who we are as his people and rightly to continue in faithfulness. But before we think about this further, let's turn immediately to the Word of God. I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3, the third chapter of Paul's great epistle to the Romans. And we're going to read together beginning at verse 21. So Romans chapter 3, and we're going to look particularly at verses 21 to 26. Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. 
when we think about 1517, we're drawing a line in history. 500 years ago, on the very last day of this month, 500 years ago, something happened. And that leads us to ask, what in the world happened? Well, what happened was that a medieval friar, we often call him a monk, there's a slight distinction between a monk and a friar, but we can just call him a monk because that's easier. It's because a medieval monk started an argument. He started an argument the way a medieval monk teaching in a university as a professor of theology and Bible would start an argument. He put up a set of theses, a set of propositions, and he had them advertised in the university city. And they were put up upon the door of the castle church, the Slaschkirche, there in Wittenberg, where he'd been sent to teach. It started an argument that led to the reformation of the church. But in order to understand the argument, we've got to understand the man who arrived on October the 31st, 1517, to make that argument, an argument that he surely could not have known on that day would lead to what we would know as the Reformation. But he did intend to start an argument. And what an argument it was. Who was Martin Luther? Well, Martin Luther was born, we think, on November the 10th, 1483. This isn't just a history lesson, just a little reminder of how God uses human beings. You just think about a, a little medieval German town, Eisleben, little mining community, and, and there to, to a, a miner, and he wasn't just someone who worked in a mine, he was, he was in the rising, emerging middle class. He was in the mining business. And Hans Luder, as he would have been known, he had a little boy, a little son who was born, and no one would have really noticed. And th th this little boy who was named Martin, I, I say we think he was born in 1483 because his mother really didn't remember the year he was born. She just remembered the day. And some of you who are mothers, you can say, well, I can kind of get that. And it was November the 10th, so he was named Martin because that was the festival day of St. Martin of Tours. She remembered that much. It was 1483 or it was 1484. It could have been 1482, but we, we think it all adds up to 1483. And, and he lived the life of a normal German boy in this circumstance. He was sent off to school as the boys who were, uh, were of that social class were sent off to school. He had to sing for his supper, as boys often did at that time. Boys the ages of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, they were sent off, and in order to have supper, they would go and they would sing outside homes until they were given something so that they could eat. It led to a lifelong interest in music on the part of Martin Luther, who gave us some of the most important hymns of the Christian faith, and who, who reminded us that the devil hates to hear Christians sing, and he loved to infuriate the devil. And so he wrote hymns, and he said, you sing them to Christ and fling them at Satan. And we've been doing that already this morning. But as a boy, he was just like any other boy, and he, there was nothing remarkable that anyone had noted. But his father wanted him to become a lawyer. That's what his father wanted. His father was a miner in terms of the mining business, but he wanted his son to become a lawyer because that's the way you step up in the society. The, the European middle class was beginning to develop in, in professions, and the law was one of the three available professions, honorable, studious, Martin. 
So he sent Martin off to Erfurt, to the university there, one of the most historic universities in Europe. And, 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 and there he intended him to do what we would call an undergraduate course. And, and Martin Luther studied with distinction, and he graduated. And, and his father then propelled him towards the law, even buying a very expensive law book. Books were extremely expensive. And his father was so proud, he gave Martin Luther this very expensive law book. And then Martin Luther began to, to study the law, but he didn't study the law very long. He was in a forest very near to Erfurt when a thunderstorm came. And in the medieval world, a thunderstorm was never merely a thunderstorm. And, and by the way, to some of us, you get in the wrong place at the wrong time, a thunderstorm is never merely a thunderstorm. It's a matter of life and death. And that seemed to be the case for Martin Luther. Lightning struck very near where he was on the back of a horse. He was thrown off of the horse. He thought he was going to die. And he cried out to St. Anne, the, the patron saint, save me and I will become a monk. It's amazing what when you think you're dying, you can pledge. Martin Luther thought he was dying. He called out to St. Anne, if I survive this, I'll become a monk. How did that come to his mind? It was because becoming a monk appeared to be the most holy act a young man can undertake. But you have to recognize becoming a monk was the absolute refutation of everything his father hoped. His father had been working to try to bring this family out of the peasant class into this emerging middle class, and he had great hope. He had poured all this money of the education of this son, Martin, so that he could become a lawyer and raise them even higher out of their background. Becoming a monk was the absolute nullification of that because a monk gives up everything worldly. Not only that, Hans Luther wants to be a patriarch. You can't be a patriarch when the son of your great hope becomes a monk. Monks don't make their fathers patriarchs. Hans Luther was furious. But Luther was determined. He had made the vow, and he had survived, so he was determined to keep the vow, and so he became a monk. Well, you say, why in the world are we talking about this in October of 2017? Because this is his story that becomes our story. So here's the problem with Martin Luther the monk. Martin Luther wasn't just any monk. He was a very serious monk. And the, the monastic life that he signed on to in terms of the Augustinian monastery there in Erfurt, it was a rigorous monastic life. The brothers didn't have anything. They'd renounced all worldly goods. They ate almost nothing. They worked. They kept hours of devotion, hours and hours and hours a day, standing and reciting chants and, and, and reciting Scripture. They, they were serious monks, and Martin Luther was the most serious of the monks among them. Every monk was appointed a, a father confessor, especially the young monks. The young monk had, a, had an older monk as a father confessor, kind of a mentor and kind of a guide. Luther's mentor, his confessor, was a kindly, very brilliant man, uh, Johannes von Staupitz. That's a great German name. You know. No one's going to think he's in Paris. <laughs> Johannes von Staupitz. And, and so Martin Luther went to him to confess his sins and to receive priestly absolution, and he went, and he went, and he went, and he went, and he went. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, if any monk could have been saved by his monkery, it was I. 
This was not just a monk. This was a monkey monk. This was a, this was a, this was a monk who wanted to out-monk all the other monks. And, and not only that, he, here's his problem. He begins to read the Scripture. The Scripture was not available to the people. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther had not seen an entire Bible until he became a student at the university. And then he couldn't get to it. He could only see it. When Martin Luther graduated from university, he didn't know how many books were in the Bible. It was considered too dangerous for the people to have or to study the Bible. And so the Bible was, was reserved simply for those who were priests, and particularly not only just being a priest, but a, a priest assigned the task of, of biblical study and biblical teaching. Luther heard enough Bible, however, to begin to have an enormous understanding of his sin. And, and he felt himself unworthy to be a monk. But the entire system of medieval Catholicism that he had grown up in, a, a system of saints and, the, and devotion to Mary and the sacraments and all the rest, it, 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 it led him to trust that if he could work hard enough and, 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 it, and if he could receive enough sacramental grace from the, the medieval Catholic Church, then he just might get to heaven. He just might be okay. The problem is the more he came to read the Scripture the more he knew he was the problem. Remember Johann von Stalpitz, that confessor priest? Martin Luther nearly drove the man insane <laughs> because he went to him again and again and again. And, and, and so in that structure of medieval Catholicism and still the official teaching of the Catholic Church today, one can by sacramental ministry, including the ministry of confession, be, be in a state of grace. The problem is you can't stay there. The problem is you can't stay there. And, and, and furthermore, he, he drew, how much trouble can you get into in a monastery? <laughs> I, I, I mean, there, there, there is a limited number of, of, say, big marquee value sins the world cares about that you can get involved in in a monastery. But he would go back to von Stappitz over and over again. And, and, and here's Luther's reasoning. And, uh, you know, I don't know if he coveted brother somebody's porridge or and I don't know what it was, it's just, but, but, but this, is, this is what happened to Luther. This is what happened to him. Luther began to understand one of the most crucial distinctions of biblical Christianity. It's the distinction between the fact that I sin and the distinction that I am a sinner. Those are two different things. I was a nine-year-old boy when I heard that explained the first time, and it landed on me like an avalanche. It was my own thunderstorm. Because I think all of us, if we're honest, know that we sin. And, and Martin Luther knew that. He would read the Scripture. He knew the law, the commandments, the statutes of God, and he knew that he sinned. But the problem was is that Luther understood that he could never not sin. He couldn't unsin, even when he was trying to confess his sin. Why did he confess his sin? Because he feared God. Why did he fear God? Maybe he had a selfish desire to go to heaven rather than hell. We can't extricate ourselves from it. We don't even know ourselves fully. We look in the mirror. We, don't, we can't even figure ourselves out. We are a riddle to ourselves. 
We're not even sure why we do some things. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. He sets his mind to do one thing, and yet as he watches himself, he does the very opposite of what he commits himself to do. He's the same person. Why? How? The distinction between sinning and being a sinner is this. If the problem is just sins, then the right of confession and the sacramental system and self-discipline can really limit sins. We can make ourselves proud of the list of sins that we have not committed. The problem is we're not even sure why. Is it righteousness for us that we do not sin if it's because we have too much to lose? Is it righteousness for us that we do not sin? And yet, as Jesus makes this distinction in the Sermon on the Mount, is it enough not to commit adultery if we still have adultery in our hearts? Is it enough not to murder if we still have anger in our hearts? Jesus made it abundantly clear the problem isn't just the sin, it's the sinner. And Luther came to this crushing realization that the chief problem was named Martin Luther. He drove von Staupitz absolutely crazy. He came to him again and again, and and he would press von Staupitz. He would press him on theological questions. He would press him on questions of sin and righteousness. And, And then here's the deal. Martin Luther could have no assurance. He had no assurance that he could be made right with God. He was increasingly aware that if he were to be made right with God, it would be nothing that he could do. And furthermore, he began to realize it's nothing this sacramental system of medieval Catholicism can offer. I mean, just just imagine how it worked. You, you, you had to hope that you had just enough sacramental grace to, to, to gain you admission to heaven. And, and even at the end, you needed extreme unction, what we call the last rites, just in order to give you that last. If you died without the last rites, how, how, how could you possibly go to heaven? And then there was the entire teaching of purgatory, not in Scripture, but invented pretty much out of whole cloth to create a way that the, the people who had been baptized but didn't have enough grace, were not sufficiently righteousness, could be purged of the temporal effect of their sins, temporal judgment of their sins until they were readied for heaven. Medieval Catholicism, the medieval world was, was, was a place of great fear, and Martin Luther was afraid. And not only that, he understood he was rightly afraid. He had what were called the Anfechtungen. That's a great German word, Anfechtungen. They were fits of despair. They were, they were fits of depression. And, and in them, it's, it is historically evident that he came very close to destroying his own life. He so despaired of the fact that he could ever be made right with God that he went into these fits, these, these Anfechtungen. It was like being cast into a deep hole from which he knew he could never climb out. It was by, like being put in a room that was so dark, there was not even a hope of light. And he despaired of himself, and he thought even of ending his life. Well, we have to fast forward. So what happened to Martin Luther? Because all that being true, we wouldn't be talking about him in October of 2017. But we're talking about him because 
He had an experience. When exactly this experience took place, we're not sure. But the experience, we will call it the tower experience, took place when he was in the tower of the monastery. But behind that was his experience teaching the Bible. He had been appointed as a monk to go do a doctorate in theology. By the way, the only of the major reformers we celebrate who actually had a doctor of theology degree. He had been sent to get this degree, and he, he was at Wittenberg, this little German town. He was there in that little university as a professor of Bible. And so he did what a professor of Bible did. He taught the Bible. And, and he taught Galatians, and he taught Hebrews, and he taught the Psalms, and he taught Romans. Later, he would look back and say that the verse that changed everything is in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And of course, there Paul is citing Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the one who by faith is righteous shall live by faith. Luther said it was as if the doors of heaven were opened unto him. Luther understood himself to be a sinner to such an extent that he feared God. He saw God and even Christ because he had read the New Testament, and he knew of Christ as the judge of sin. And, and so he feared Christ. He found that he almost could not worship Christ. Why? Because he feared him so, because he knew himself to be a sinner who could never be made right with God. And then he, it came to him from the Scripture, the just shall live by faith, not faith and not faith supplemented by, not faith disguised as, faith. Now, something else was going on at the same time. In medieval Catholicism, they were raising money at the instruction of the Pope by selling what were known as indulgences. And I have never known of a better church building plan than this. <laughs> they were trying to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and, and the indulgences worked this way. The Pope would give a seller of indulgences a license to sell an indulgence, and an indulgence was a release from purgatory to heaven that could be purchased. Such a deal. <laughs> and not only that, the sale of indulgences expanded from the sale to you for your escape from purgatory, you could buy in advance. That didn't raise enough money. To selling indulgences for your ancestors who were dead, that didn't raise enough money. So then they came up with, you can even buy indulgences for sins you have not yet committed. Such a deal. By the way, some of the German nobility were very upset about this. Johannes Tetzel was the Pope's agent that was going through much of Germany and had entered into Saxony, into the periphery of Luther's territory, selling these indulgences. They became notorious, and some of the Ger German nobility didn't like it. One German nobleman went up to Tetzel, and he said, you can really sell an indulgence for a sin not yet committed? And he said, oh, yeah, such a deal. So this nobleman said, I want one of those, and he bought it. 
And then he waited outside the church for Tetzel to come out, and he beat him up. <laughs> but he said, it's already covered because I bought the indulgence for the sin not yet committed. So Luther is, is struggling over the knowledge of his own sin, and he is studying the Scripture, and he realizes you can't find an indulgence in Scripture. Furthermore, the logic keeps pressing him backwards. You can't find purgatory in Scripture. The logic keeps pushing him backward and backward. Then what do you find in Scripture? So if, if indulgences are not found in Scripture, then it's a lie to sell them. And, and so he's filled with fury. Those arguments that he made, that he posted on October the 31st, 1517, they began as an indictment of, of, of the, the Roman Catholic Church's false understanding of repentance, Amen. turning it into penance. And Luther said penance and repentance are not the same thing. One's with the purse, the other's with the heart. And then he started pressing back. He didn't just have one or two or three arguments, we refer to his document as the 95 Theses because he didn't just say, I've got an argument. He said, I've got 95 arguments. And he put them up and intended to start a debate, and a debate started indeed. And it led to what we know as the Reformation. Martin Luther did not know on October the 31st, 1517, even where that argument would take him very quickly because in, in, a, in, a, in a remarkably short amount of time, within a year, his 95 theses were in Rome. Within a year, Henry VIII of Great Britain, of England, is reading the 95 theses. They ricocheted throughout all of Europe because of the power of, of the argument and because it was a direct refutation of what the church was teaching, and a, a, an accusation that the church was not standing on Scripture, but on some other authority. And, and, and thus, what Luther started as an argument became what we know as the reform of the church. And, and step by step, it led the reformers to understand what we call the solas of the Reformation, the five solas, the, the, the fact that, that we are justified by faith alone, Amen. sola fide that this is ours by grace alone, sola gratia, and that this is by the work of Christ alone, solus Christus, and that it is known to us by the authority of Scripture alone, sola scriptura, and that the end of all things is not any human glory, but the glory of God Amen. alone, sole deo gloria. That's why 500 years later, we're in Atlanta, Georgia, in the very month, 500 years after that argument started, we're here to say with boldness, with kindness, with humility, but with conviction, we are here to continue this argument. But we're here to continue this argument not because we're just taking sides in an argument, but because we are compelled to do so by Scripture. Look at the text, Romans chapter 3. This is the crucial text that sets these issues very clearly. Perhaps the most famous scholar of that age was named Erasmus, Erasmus of Rotterdam. Some of you probably heard his name. Erasmus was the most respected mind in Europe at the time. He was the most respected thinker. He wasn't exactly a theologian, but he, he did theology. 
But he was recognized as the leading humanist scholar, and humanist back then meant uh, what we call the liberal arts. He was, he was then known as the, the most famous scholar. He also wanted to see reform in the medieval Catholic Church. He wanted to see it happen. He just thought Luther was extreme. I love what he called Luther. He called Luther Dr. Hyperbolicus. <laughs> he said, Luther's right. He's just too right. He takes everything and makes it a hyperbole. And, and what did Erasmus hate more than anything else? The word alone. He said, the faith, yes, but faith alone's too extreme. Grace, yes, but grace alone? That's hyperbole. Of course, if grace isn't alone, we know it isn't grace. And Christ alone? Well, certainly we, de we depend upon the merits of Christ, but we must be able to add something to it, right? And then, of course, the authority of Scripture alone. Erasmus said, what's the point of having 15 centuries of the church if the church doesn't have a say as a source of revelation alongside Scripture? Luther understood the alone was absolutely crucial. And the text that made that point more clear for Luther than any other is the text we read. Look at how Paul lays out his case here. As we saw in chapter 1, verse 17, citing Habakkuk, he said, the righteous shall live by faith. And now we read, beginning in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We learn from a very early age those basic questions. Let's start with when. When? Well, Paul says, but now. Now, when Paul says, but now, this should have our attention because then what came before but now? Well, what came before was everything before the incarnation, the sinless life, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The but now is on this side of God's decisive act of salvation in Christ. It, the, the but now is on this side of the cross and of the empty tomb. On this side, but now, well, this becomes very evident, Paul says to us, but now on this side of the atonement of Christ, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But now, oh, in Scripture, that, that word, but now, that, that, that little phrase means everything to us because we're on the other side of God's act of salvation. Amen. But notice what, notice what Paul says. Paul didn't say that this is God, but now we're in God's plan B. Plan A didn't go so well, but now we're in plan B. It's not what he says. He says, but now, now he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And remember when he, back in chapter 1, verse 17, you remind us, the just shall live by faith, he was quoting the prophet Habakkuk. In Romans chapter 4, Paul makes this point through Abraham, saying, if you just study the story of Abraham, you come to understand, just as is revealed to us in Genesis, that 
that Abraham obeyed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He believed. That's the word. Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Justification by faith, Paul says, it's, it's in Genesis. And, and the law and the prophets testified to it. But he says, but now, but now it's evident. Now it's manifested. Now it's demonstrated in the cross and in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is the message of the church, the message of justification by faith alone. Luther's problem was how in the world could he be righteous before God? He knew himself to be a sinner. He knew his heart. He knew his heart. He knew in his heart that he didn't just sin, he was a sinner. And he could not extricate himself from that, even to have an adequate confession of his own sin. I mean, if you do trust in your power to confess, let me ask you this. How exhaustive can you actually be in your own confession of sin? I, I dare say you don't know yourself well enough. And if you do pride yourself on adequately confessing your sin, now you've got the sin of pride. <laughs> There's simply no way out of this. Theologically, this is sometimes des described as the adolescent quandary. Now, why do we do, is it called the adolescent quandary? It's because elementary school-aged children don't think in abstract terms. They, don't, they think they don't think about themselves thinking. A 14-year-old thinks about herself thinking. And that's when the distinction can be made, I'm worse than I thought. Because I now can think about my heart in ways that a younger child really cannot. And, and Luther, in this sense, was just in an extended adolescence, which is actually where we're all stuck in this sense, with the recognition that when we know ourselves, we know ourselves to be a sinner. And, and Luther knew that God demanded absolute righteousness. All throughout the Scripture, we have the demand of absolute righteousness. And, and so Luther, trying to, to operate with a the theology he had received, thought that what was, what was promised to him in the sacraments of the church was that if he demonstrated sufficient righteousness in himself, on his own terms, in his own power, that he could trust upon the church to assure him of additional righteousness from the merits of the saints, premised upon the work of Christ, that just might get him over the line. But here's, here's the problem. Luther understood that his contribution was zero. That's the problem with the whole scheme. Luther didn't need a little bit of grace. Luther knew he needed all grace, and yet he wasn't promised any way to have grace alone until he read a passage like Romans chapter 3. The when question, when, but now. That, that but now puts us on the side of salvation. And, and then again, Paul will demonstrate that this is God's plan A. There is no plan A and plan B. God's plan A was revealed through Abraham, through you and your seed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And, and to show in the experience of the law and the prophets, the experience of Israel, the promise of the gospel, but not yet its fulfillment. But now the fulfillment of the gospel has come. That to which the law and the prophets were pointing, bearing witness. What? When is but now? What? What's revealed? The righteousness of God through faith to Christ Jesus, that faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. 
So, so what's the what? The what is righteousness. Amen. That's the what. The righteousness we need. The righteousness alone that will save. The righteousness alone that corresponds to God's own righteousness. What righteousness can possibly correspond to God's own righteousness? What righteousness can God possibly receive is the righteousness that is his. That's the only righteousness he can accept is the righteousness equal to his own. There is no righteousness equal to his own. So we're doomed except for the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. It's what Paul will say that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the only righteousness, the only righteousness that will do is the righteousness of Christ. The when, but now, the what, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The, the, the how, how. We are justified by His grace as a gift. Amen. Now, I can remember when I was a little boy reading advertisements in the newspaper and being puzzled by them. How can something be new and improved? I mean, if you know what new means... And you know what improved means? It can't be new and improved. It can be improved or it can be new. It can't be both. And, and then I would read and it would say, absolutely free. And I can remember as a boy thinking, well, what's free if it's not absolutely free? And the answer is just about everything people say is free. <laughs> is it really free? If you got to say absolutely free, it meant the rest of the time you were saying free, you actually didn't even mean free. But the point here is the, the word alone, because we're not left hanging. N notice the how here. The how is that we are justified, look at verse 24, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How did this happen? How? How? Look at verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So we're not only told that God acted unilaterally, sovereignly, solitarily to save us. We're told that He did it in a specific way. He did it in order to demonstrate His righteousness. But how did He do that? He did it by putting forth Jesus Christ as a propitiation. Now, that's one of those words that really can't be translated down. And there are a lot of words you can take a big word and make it a little word and not lose a whole lot. This is a word that's a big word. You can't make it a little word without losing it. What's a propitiation? It is an act of sacrifice that changes God's disposition from wrath to love. That's it. It's a sacrifice that, that is so comprehensive and so right and so perfect 
that it satisfies God's justice so that His disposition towards sinners changes from wrath to mercy, wrath to acceptance. And then we're told the how. How did that happen? It is because He put forth the display of this sacrifice, this propitiation, which He both demanded and supplied on a cross in public, in full view of sinful humanity who put the Son of God to death. The Father was actually performing a sacrifice on an altar of a cross in order to state this is what sin does and this is the sacrifice, the atonement that will alone suffice. It is the blood of my sinless Son. And when Jesus said, it is finished, the Gospels tell us that God declared that sacrifice perfect, and even the veil in the temple was rent all the way down. The final sacrifice had been made, and the price for our sin, not for His sin, for He was sinless, but our sin was paid in full so that for those who have faith in Christ, we now bear Christ's righteousness. When God sees us, the Father sees us, He doesn't see our sin if we are in Christ. If we have confessed with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, and if we have believed in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, if we have confessed and repented of our sins, not in an endless pattern that depends upon the power of our confession, but out of the endless grace and mercy that is demonstrated in Christ, then when God the Father, the Holy Judge, looks to us, He doesn't even see our own sin. He sees the imputed righteousness of His own dear Son. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He sees his own son's righteousness. And Luther said that means that the only righteousness that will save is, you're going to love his way of putting it, is an alien righteousness. Yeah, the word alien then didn't mean what it does now. It meant outside of us. And don't you know that's what you need? We need an alien righteousness. We need somebody else's righteousness. And the righteousness of the saints isn't going to do it. Every one of them was a sinner. The the righteousness of the prophets won't do it. Every one of them was a sinner. The main lesson we learn from the Old Testament is that there's just one hero, and that's God. But the righteousness of Christ, it's infinite. It paid the infinite price of our sin. Why? Well, you got the, the when, but now, and the, the who, God sent forth His Son, Jesus Christ. And, and, and we have the how, so that we are justified by faith. The one who has faith in Jesus is justified by His grace, unmerited favor. How did that happen? The what and the how. God put forth His Son as a propitiation, a sacrifice in public for all the world to see. And He not only received the sacrifice, He raised His Son from the dead in order to vindicate His sacrifice and say, this penalty has been paid in full. And all who are in My Son are Mine. But why? 
many of you remember when you were in school, the, 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 the who, the what, the where, and the when were always the easy questions? It's the why that always required the essay. The, the why is the hard question, the why. And, and, and the why starts out with us a hard question. That's why your two-year-old infuriates you. It's because we are inquisitory why creatures. As soon as we learn to ask the question, we can't stop asking the question. It's the hardest question. And here it is answered so succinctly, why? Look at the final part of this passage. This was to show. Look at verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness. It was to show God's own righteousness. This is the most amazing thing. How righteous is God? He is so righteous that he demands absolute obedience. He's so righteous that he demands absolute holiness, which creates an infinite problem because we fall so short of that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he shows his righteousness by demanding full payment for sin. But then he shows his righteousness by providing the very sacrifice that he demands. That's exactly what Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says here. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. What does that mean? It meant he didn't destroy humanity. He did not, in Genesis 3, destroy humanity, but rather he demonstrated forbearance for centuries and for centuries and for centuries. He demonstrated forbearance until at the present time. What did he do at the present time? Look what he says. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, but now, the present time, so that he might be just, period. No. So that he might be just, because he'd be just, period, and we'd be destroyed. He would be just to send us to hell. He would be just to obliterate us from his own memory. But he demonstrates himself not only to be just, but also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So 500 years after that argument was started, we're still in this argument because we always have to be clear what the gospel is. We've always got to go back to, to Scripture. And by the way, this is why sola scriptura is so important, because we really do believe the only authority we need, the only authority that truly exists, the only authority God has given us whereby we even know these things is the Scripture. So when we ask the question, what is the gospel, we turn to a passage like this, because this is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. We've got nowhere else to turn. And there it is displayed for us so clearly we celebrate this because we have to continue to define the gospel. There are false gospels all around us. There are false gospels very close to us. There are gospels of prosperity theology, and there, there, there are gospels that, 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 that mean that theological liberals have actually completely redefined the Christian faith. They've liberated themselves from Christ, from Scripture, from all the rest. They've got beautiful tall steeples, but there's no gospel in those churches. There's the gospel of easy believism, the nominal Christianity that's not real Christianity that infects so much of America. And then, of course, there are genuine theological arguments that continue until now that require our attention. But the main reason why we celebrate the Reformation is because we are Luther. That's the bottom line. We weren't born 
on November the 10th in 1483. We weren't raised as boys, children in medieval Germany, but we have the very same experience. We have the experience of knowing that our sin is greater than we can possibly manage. Our sin is so insidious that we can't even adequately confess it. We understand that our sin is so deadly that we rightly deserve nothing but hell. We understand that our efforts to extricate ourselves from the problems of sin just make ourselves more sinful. That's the Apostle Paul's point when he says his righteousness is his filthy rags. Everything he tries to do to make himself right just makes him more wrong. But at the present time, now, God has made clear that I may be saved and that you can be saved by faith in Christ, faith alone, because it's by grace alone. By coming to faith in Christ and repenting of our sins, then we can be we can be seen by the Father. We are seen by the Father, no longer as the sinner we know ourselves to be. But when He looks to us, knowing even that and showing His glory, He sees the righteousness of His own Son. So we speak of this gospel, and we celebrate the Reformation because there are people all around us who desperately need to hear this gospel. It's because this is the greatest good news human ears have ever heard. This is the gospel of the only way of salvation. And the great good news is that God has offered this salvation so that anyone who believes will be received and will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's why it's our responsibility to take that gospel to the ends of the earth. Martin Luther started an argument. We're still in that argument, and God's glory is still in that argument, but that's not why we turn to this text, because we turn to this text because in that argument, we're pointed back to the only gospel that ever was and the only gospel that ever will be and it's the only gospel that saves. And it's the gospel that always saves. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful for what you have given us in Scripture. And we thank you for giving us the privilege and the stewardship of continuing in a long line of witness from the apostles until now. Father, may we in this age be no less grounded in the gospel, no less ambassadors of the grace and mercy of God, no less humble and grateful. Father, if there be anyone here who has not yet come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, we pray that even now your Holy Spirit be working in their hearts to draw them unto Christ, who never fails. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.